1521 that Englishman William Tyndale got in an argument with a fellow clergy member. His colleague insisted that it was more important to know the laws of the Pope in Rome than it was to know the laws of God in Scripture. That statement angered Tyndale, and I think rightly so, and he kind of shot back and said, I defy the Pope and all of his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you know. To a clergyman. I mean, that was shocking. That a plow boy would know more of Scripture than the priest. 1523, Tyndale journeyed to London to seek permission from Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall to translate the Bible into English. He had to get his approval to try this novel thing. And Tunstall denied the request. It was simply too reckless to give a plowboy the freedom to read God's Word. Only the trained clergy could be trusted to handle the Scriptures and interpret them properly. Give it to the common people and all kinds of trouble will come. The following year, a London merchant funded Tyndale's mission and sent him off to Germany where he began his hard labor of translating the Bible into English. And when Tyndale shipped the first copies to England, Tunstall was right in line at the beginning of the line to get as many of those copies as he possibly could get. And took them to St. Paul's Cross Church in London and burned them. Then he sent emissaries over to Germany to buy in bulk all of Tyndale's Bibles that he could get his hands on and burn them there so they'd never even reach the shores of England. You cannot give the common person the Bible. Tyndale often evaded capture in Germany through his endeavors, but in 1535 he was betrayed to the authorities, he was kidnapped, then imprisoned for 16 months, and then on October 6, 1536, Tyndale was tied to a stake, he was strangled to death, and his body burned. His last words were, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Just two years later, in one sense of the term, God did that, answered that prayer, and King Henry gave freedom to print what is known now as the Great Bible in England, which was largely Tyndale's translation. More could be said about this story, much more, but let me highlight the fact that Tyndale believed that a simple plowboy, that is, a young farmer of inferior education could read and understand and obey the very words of God. And this points us to today's text in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 
But we're going to take a rather winding journey before we arrive at that specific text where we will settle in toward the end. But as we continue our biblical theological theme of God's Word and tracing it through the Scriptures, uh, some background I think will be helpful today. Last week we looked at Genesis 1 through 3, creation, God speaks the world into existence. Chapter 2, God gives His law to Adam and says, this is what you will do, what you are free to do, this is what you must not do. And then in chapter 3, the disobedience to that law, breaking the creative, life-giving, life-transforming, life-sustaining law of God, Adam and Eve were plunged into sin and we with them. We considered here in our reading in Exodus 19 that God gave His law to Israel then on Mount Sinai. In this biblical theological series of sermons on the topic of God's Word, some of the passages we will skip along the way will be almost criminal to do so. But there is so much material, we could in fact stay in the book of Deuteronomy the entire time. But one of those passages that it's virtually criminal to skip is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. We did at least read uh, from Exodus 19, but suffice it here to read, in summary, Exodus 31 and verse 18. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, we read some of that historical background here earlier, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. We witness here, as we do in many places in Scripture, three interlocking concepts. Just zero into them just briefly here. First is event. A historical event that bears witness to God's presence and glory. That is coupled secondly with word. An objective, authoritative word from God that communicates His truth to His people in light of that event. Whether that's rebuke or warning, command, comfort, promise, whatever it is, God's word is spoken to interpret the event. That which has literally happened in the plan of God. And then thirdly, that's coupled with presence. The event and the word are calibrated to express God's presence and draw His people into fellowship with Him. So as God gives His word, it interprets His saving events and draws us into fellowship with Him. We see this clearly in the giving of the law. As Israel then journeys north from Mount Sinai, they leave with two stone tablets bearing the Ten Commandments, or literally the Ten Words of God as Israel's treasured possession taking this word of God representatively etched in stone in those 10 words and then reflecting all of the law of God which is now recorded for us in these early books of scripture this leads us then to the wilderness wanderings which we've been studying at some length through uh, past months, but Israel breaks camp at Mount Sinai. They journey northward, slowly, toward the promised land, the land that God's word has promised to his people through Abraham. In Numbers 13 and 14, we remember that Israel refuses to enter into the land. 
This leads to God's discipline over the next 40 years as that generation dies off in the desert. This is God's goodness to them, His blessing to them. A lot of things that He's doing with the conquest of the Lamb, but they want no part of it. They're not going to go in. And through this discipline then over 40 years, a new generation stands up and is poised now to enter the promised land. And Moses then prepares that generation with the book of Deuteronomy. That is this second review of the law. Understanding the law again. Preparing these people to enter into the promise of God, into the land, but to do so in a way that is obedient and faithful to the Lord and to His Word. The message of Deuteronomy then, the theme of God's Word, looms very large in this book. But just a brief consideration is all we can afford here in this particular series. So I point you to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Israel has the law. She's poised at the verge of entering into the promised land. And Moses says, chapter 4, verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You should not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Through the medium of human language, Moses conveys to the Israelites the very words of God. What God desires for them to know is conveyed in human language. So authoritative, so sufficient are these words that Israel must never tamper with them, adding nothing to them, taking nothing away. Only by obeying these words, as they stand written, will Israel find life in these words. That's what God intends, but they cannot tamper with this word that He's delivered. Verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses again speaking to Israel. That you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? It's a two-way communication. His word to His people, His people speaking to Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So the one true and living God speaks. We notice here in verse 7 the word near. Just take note of that. This God who is near to His people. God had spoken to Israel 
And Israel then possessed the treasured light that would enable her to flourish in a dark world. And the nations will see this. They will recognize that this is a distinct privilege to have the Word of God to steer life. Imagine that there's Arctic adventurers. They're on a thousand-mile sled dog race. And this is like a live-or-die situation because none of the mushers has a map. They just got to figure it out, how to get where they're going. And in fact, they're really facing certain death because they don't know where this is all taking them. But one last musher arrives late with his dog sled, and they find out that he has a map. Do you think the other mushers will notice this? Do you think they'll take note of this? Of course, right? They'll say, there's one of us here that has a map. Now, they might hate the guy for it. They might try to steal it from him or hurt him or something like that. But they're going to know he has an amazing advantage in this race. In a sense, that illustrates what Moses is saying here. The nations are going to notice. There is no God that speaks to His people to whom we can pray where there is communication both directions. This is unique. And the nations are going to recognize this. Verses 12 through 14 of chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to you, Out of the midst of the fire, that's Mount Sinai earlier, 40 years before, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. What does that mirror? What does that echo? I mean, there's Genesis 1, right? All is just the word in darkness. You see nothing, but you hear his voice. Verse 13, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me, and the the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. That should all make clear sense to us. You have my word. You have the word of God, and we're going into the land that he has promised. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Moses continues, and as God gives his word to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You see it again. Event, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the word is with you and it is intended to lead you to love me with all of your heart as I love you with all of my heart, God says to Israel. And then to teach these words to 
the children that are to come so that the Word of God is passed on from generation to generation, creating a context in which God communicates His will and His people return in faith, trust, and love in their response to Him. Then verses 20 and following. So when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? What do you say? They're just rules. God's God. We're his people. We don't really have a choice. He just tells us what to do. It's just the way it is. Is that what you say? No. 21, notice it. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Event. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us, a nation of slaves, out from there, Egypt, the most powerful land on the earth at the time, that he might bring us into this land, give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded, not just words, not just arbitrary, but objective words that draw us into relationship with Him that allow us to live this God who saved us, this God who delivered us from Egypt, showing His mighty power there. Event, word, the presence of the Lord. And Israel preparing now to enter into that promised land. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. That's Moses speaking, the commandment, singular, referring to all of the law, all that was received on Sinai that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Just stop momentarily there. Think of this. Israel is under the discipline of the Lord, and He's at work for her sanctification. God never judges His people. The judgment He has paid, but He does discipline for our good. And He disciplines Israel even while, he is, while they're under discipline. He is still growing and molding them. He humbled you, verse 3, and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
He put you in a place of hunger. He deprived you of food. Not to kill you, but to teach you that yes, we live by bread, we know that, but we live by the word of God. Ever teaching Israel, I'm your deliverer. I am the one you are to love with all of your heart as I love you with all of my heart. And my word is your life. Israel preparing in this way now to enter into that promised land. As Moses begins to tie up these instructions, we come then finally here to the 30th chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we narrow in here at verse 11. For just these moments as we tie up this theme, as Moses ties it up here in this section. And we learn first of all that God's word is clear and accessible, thus we should obey it. It is clear and it is accessible. An important doctrine of the word of God is its clarity. Notice this theme beginning verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. This commandment, all of God's covenant law given on Mount Sinai, taken as a whole, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. God's Word is not too hard to comprehend or too distant to possess. He works that out in verse 12. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? How on earth can human beings know what God thinks? How is that possible? Maybe we need to ascend into heaven. Send somebody there. Seek audience with God. Bring His truth back to earth with us. That's how on earth we could know God's word. What does Moses say? No, no. God has come here. He's given you his word. It's right here with you. You don't have to send somebody to heaven to get it. These are the very words of God, and they are in your possession. Well, if God's word is here on earth, well we certainly would need to travel to find some guru somewhere. Never could possibly be a local deal. You've got to travel somewhere to find the real truth, right? So maybe, maybe, we, maybe there's somebody out there that has it. Is that possible? 13, neither. Is it beyond the sea? That you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? No, no, you don't need to go to the ends of the earth to recover it from some exotic teacher. Here it is, verse 14. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. It is near you. Remember chapter 4, verse 7? Who has a God that is near us as with our case? This word is near you. I think there's a direct connection there. And it reminds us as we looked at Frame's statement last week, here again, when we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. 
God makes this clear again and again in Scripture. When we encounter God, we encounter His Word. God's Word and His personal presence are inseparable. His Word indeed is His personal presence. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. And we know that ultimately this is epitomized in the Word become flesh, Jesus Christ. But whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there in His Word, drawing us into a relationship in His presence. So as Moses says it, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Or we might say, you know it by heart, you can recite it with understanding, so that you can do it. Now what does he mean by that? I don't think he's saying you have the power in yourself to obey God's law. He's certainly not saying you can earn your salvation by obeying God's law. I think in context, if there is any question that he's saying you can do this and save yourself, that's put to rest in chapter 31, where God guarantees Israel that she's going to break his law. You will break my law when that happens, when my discipline comes. He's not misleading them to think that, oh, we can do this word and we can save ourselves by it. Not at all. Chapter 31. But he's saying it something maybe like we would say it this way. God's word is not rocket science. When God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from every tree in this garden except for that one, that was not hard to understand. It was pretty clear. God's word is clear and it is accessible. That's what Moses is stressing here. It's not an esoteric philosophy that only the really smart people can figure out like those that can spell esoteric and have a clue what it means, right? No. Its rules are not too complex to follow. God's laws are right there. They're in your mouth, in your heart, waiting to be obeyed. The simple, rural plowboy can get it. Now, we must recognize then, and I'm basing it on this particular text, but it could be drawn from many others, the significant doctrine in the study of God's Word concerning its clarity. This is something that has been stressed for a long time in theology. The formal doctrinal word for the clarity of Scripture is its perspicuity. As has been said, that's a pretty unclear word that means clear. But uh, perspicuity, that's a new one for us, perhaps. But uh, Kevin DeYoung puts this very nicely when he says, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, upholds the notion that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed for them to be faithful Christians. He captures a lot there. This is what Tyndale was driving at with his plowboy comment. This is what, in part, Tyndale died for. This belief. 
They say, well, who would disagree with that? Let me give you three people, three theological constructs that are very common in our day that all around us in this city, in this state and beyond, people believe. Christian churches teach. They're teaching very differently than what I'm saying here today, but I could point you to them. This is what they believe. One of these three areas. First of all, God cannot be known by human language because He is so far beyond it. This sounds very pious. Well, yes, of course, God is bigger than words. And so maybe we really can't know God through His Word. Yes, God can be known by human language because that is precisely how He chooses to be known. That line of thinking that we cannot know God because He's too big for us to understand in words is simply a way of rejecting what His Word has said and what God has chosen to do. No one is arguing that human language can tell us all that there is to know about God. We'll never tap the depths of His being. But words can tell us all God determines we need to know about Him for now. And I think it's very wrong thinking along these lines when those who say this, God cannot be known through human language, reject the Bible, and then start using human words to tell you what God is like. They're really doing is just sidestepping what Scripture says about God. They don't like what it says, and so they say, oh, it can't really be understood in words, except for my words. Listen to what I have to say. Second type of thinking. We need the magisterium to interpret Scripture, that is, the Pope, the bishops who are in communion with him, and the like. This is the argument of Tyndale's fellow clergymen. Good grief, leave people to read the Bible? They'll come up with all kinds of harmful things. All kinds of twisted interpretations. They will, they will hurt their lives by the way they interpret Scripture. There's some truth in that, isn't there? There certainly is. But the answer is not to channel the interpretation of Scripture then through a narrow channel of a few scholars and church authorities because God's Word says that His Word is perspicuous. It is clear. It can be understood. God is not trying to keep us confused we don't need to travel to Rome to have the Bible properly interpreted, nor to Louisville or Philadelphia or Cambridge or anywhere else. It's not that it's set somewhere with some certain people, but it's here, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, it's right there for you to know. So we would reject Rome's thinking along these lines, that only the church, that is, only the Pope and those bishops in communion with him can rightly interpret Scripture. But there's a third line, and that's the pluralism line of thought, which is very prevalent in liberal Christian churches around us. And that says something like, every religious person sees life from their own unique perspective and thus reads things uniquely. We can never say that God sees things a certain way because we're just seeing it from our perspective. So we certainly cannot tell anybody else what they must believe because we can never really see the truth accurately. 
You've heard the illustration. It's like blind people touching an elephant and describing it, right? The one blind person grabs the tail and says an elephant, in this case, God, but an elephant is, is like a rope. Another person touches the side of the elephant and says, wow, elephant is like a wall. And one grabs the trunk and says the elephant is like a really big fire hose. And one grabs the leg and says, what? This elephant is like a tree trunk. And so this is supposed to settle the point for us. See, everybody sees it in their blindness from a different perspective. We really don't know what God is like. What's the problem? In this case, the elephant speaks. He tells us how to understand his leg and his tail and his trunk and his side. He explains to us in our blindness who he is. Isn't this what Jesus says essentially when he talks to the Pharisees and says, have you not read? Not, well, Pharisees, you've got your perspective, I've got mine, let's hammer it out a little bit, but I'll respect you for what you think, you respect me for what I think. There's none of that. He says, have you not read the Scriptures? They're right there in your mouth. They're right there in your heart. They're not hard to understand in that sense of all that God wants you to know, to know Him. Haven't you read? The elephant speaks in words and in written text. We have that word. Now let me keep down this line just a little bit longer and some qualifiers concerning the clarity of Scripture. We're not saying that every passage is equally clear. Some passages are harder to understand than other passages. I think anybody that's read the Bible through knows that. Some will remain beyond the reach of the church until we meet Christ. I might, we might say that as well. Secondly, not every passage is equally clear to all believers. Those who walk closer to God, those who give themselves diligently to the study of Scripture will generally understand some passages better than believers who are less mature, less diligent, less capable of deeper study. So we're not saying that. Thirdly, we're not saying that every passage is necessary for salvation. Every letter of Scripture is the inspired Word of God necessary for life and godliness, but not every passage needs to be equally understood in order for us to be saved. Scripture is clear enough, thorough enough, for us to fulfill all that God demands of us along life's journey. That's the point. It's right there for you. And how clear this is to us who hold copies of God's Word. Multiple, electronic and physical, have such access to this Word. But with these qualifiers all in place, let us focus on the fact that the clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture assumes our responsibility to obey it. That's the point here. It's, you don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to cross the sea. I and my love have given you my word. It's right there for you to obey, to follow, 
as a guide for life. Moses could not be more clear on this point in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember how James puts it. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. Hearing assumes clarity in James. Doing assumes that the point of God's word is not merely to know it, but to do it in order to know him. Secondly, and we'll go quickly here, that God's word is life or death. Choose life. Verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. God speaks. We either listen and obey or we go our own direction as Adam and Eve did. One way is life. The other path is death. With respect to life, verse 16, he continues, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live. And you'll multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Notice again that obedience to God's word is more than external conformity. Obedience at its core is loving fidelity to God. We demonstrate our fidelity to the Lord, our love for Him in the way that we respond to His written word. To the truth that He's revealed. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away, here's now the negative, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Obey and live, disobey and perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. This is the beautiful and frustrating reality. It's right there for us. But so often we choose to disobey it. To disregard it. For some here today, apart from Christ, you are living in rejection of God's will. You don't live by His written word. That's not what's guiding your life. You're living on your own, doing your own thing. You'll listen to the Bible. Clearly you're here. But you really haven't given yourself in fidelity to God in order to live according to His Word. That's not how you see your life. God's will, His commands, His counsel, and His offer of life are there, but you don't want it. There's one thing I know about your life, and that's there's a lot of misery. That's a miserable spot to be in. Because it's a path to death. C.S. Lewis said it this way, when we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be. That is, we're going to be wanting what in fact will not make us happy. There's just no other way. God knows how he designed you. He knows where happiness lies for the heart. He knows that that's in a relationship with him. He's given the map to make this thousand mile dog sled journey because he loves us and wants to walk in fellowship with us and us to choose fellowship with him. If we choose anything else, we're going to be miserable. 
Next sentence, those divine demands which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. That makes sense? It's so often when we read God's Word and say, I don't like that. I don't want that. That's not what I want for my life. It's right there that we don't know what we want. And God gives it to us. He hands it to you. And says, don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery in your heart. Love others as you love yourself. Put their interests ahead of yours. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Made in His image. That's what we really want. We just don't know it. And you may not know it. Maybe if there's an honest moment in rejection of Christ, you say, I want out of this misery. The good news is that the truth is right there for you to grasp. The Apostle Paul drew from this very text. He does an amazing thing with it as he turns it on the other side of the cross to focus on Jesus, but says that the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. What's he drawing from? That's Deuteronomy 30. But notice what he says. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That's Deuteronomy 30. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If we could paraphrase it a bit this way and say the words right there. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It's beyond our full comprehension. But it's right there in your mouth and in your heart. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of sin for the lost. For those who know not Christ as Savior, His death pays that cost. And His resurrection power gives us life. Event. He died. Event. He rose from the dead. Word of God. That is for your forgiveness. That is for your eternal life. So that you enter into the presence of God and enjoy Him forever. That's mysterious. It's deep. But it's not too hard. It's right there for you to trust and hold. That's what Paul's saying. So Israel didn't have to go to heaven or cross the sea to get the word. And you don't have to do that to please God. Remember? No, you don't have to go to heaven to get the word. He's brought the word to you on Mount Sinai. You don't have to go to heaven to earn your salvation. Heaven's come here in Christ. And in Christ, in what he's done, he will give you eternal life. It's right there. And so, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. 
that you and your offspring may live. What does that mean, to live? What is it that we want if we knew what we wanted? It is this, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give to them, and that we on this side of the cross trusting in Christ, can know on the promise of God that His righteousness covers my sin, that He is my righteousness, my hope, my eternal reward. Trusting that Word of God, I choose life. Jesus speaks the words of life and obeying Him, loving Him, walking in His ways, holding fast to Him in faithfulness. This is the way of life. A life we experience as we respond to His words in Holy Scripture. And so here we are. In a sophisticated, grown-up sense, we're Tyndale's plowboy, you and me. That's who we are. The clearly understood, entirely accessible words of God in human speech have awoken our souls to eternal life. And today, God's Word remains our authority, our fully sufficient counsel that gives form and beauty to our lives. But we're also warned against the assault of Satan that exhorts us to reject God's words and turn to false gods for security and support in pursuing our own ways against the counsel of God. There is the struggle always for every one of us on some level. But by God's grace then, we as a church gather together and live together to encourage one another to resist that allure. You won't surely die. To resist that allure, that lie from Satan that is spoken to us all the time. And to encourage each other to hold fast in faithfulness to his word as our salvation and as our refuge. That's our life together until the faith becomes sight. And all that God has promised is received in glory. Father, we thank you for these promises. We're thankful for this instruction and pray that you would deepen us and mold us through it. Help us, those who are able to gather this afternoon, to talk through some of the implications. May you bless the preaching of the Word of God and allow it to take root in our souls as we exhort and help one another and reflect further. For those that know not Christ as Savior, Father, show them Help them to see what they're blind to. They don't know what they want. I pray that you'd lift the veil and show them that right there in front of them is Jesus crucified and risen. May they reach out and trust you today as Savior. Guide us as we seek to honor your truth. May we be faithful as a body and faithful as your followers. Through Christ we pray.